Welcome to Tantra Talks, where we make fintech sexy. On each episode, topics will range from news and updates about fintech, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, to algorithmic trading, mining, consumer adoption, and on occasion, we will get cosmic and explore how Bitcoin is ushering in an entirely new financial paradigm. This podcast is brought to you by Tantra Labs and hosted by Tantra CTO Russell LaCour and Creative Director Brecky Von Bitcoin. Please note, all opinions expressed by Brecky, Russell, or their guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Tantra Labs, Inc. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Brecky, Russell, or their guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Hey there, folks. This is Brecky Von Bitcoin, and I'm here to introduce a very special episode of Tantra Talks. We had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Nick Batia. You may know Nick from his seminal research piece, The Time Value of Bitcoin. Definitely check it out if you haven't read it yet. And more recently, Nick put out a fantastic piece called The Triumvirate of Liquidity. Nick can be a bit humble and soft-spoken at times, but he is an absolute rock star in the Bitcoin space. He's a professor at USC, and in addition to the research he does for us here at Tantra Labs, Nick also works on research for OpenNode, which offers one of the easiest ways to accept Bitcoin. I actually use OpenNode to accept Bitcoin on my e-commerce site, so I'm not just saying that because I read it off their website. Uh, but enough of that and on to the episode. I really think you're going to enjoy it. We talk about Bitcoin, of course, the Lightning Network, what Nick sees as the path to hyper-Bitcoinization, and then we talk about what it's like to raise a daughter as a Bitcoiner in these uncertain times. All right, folks, fasten your seatbelts, secure your private keys. It's time for Tantra Talks. So we're just gonna hit the ground running. I've been so busy that I haven't been able to figure out what we wanted to talk about today. So I'm gonna leave it up to Brecky to make the talking points, but ultimately like, I kinda wanna know more about Nick Batia, the time value of Bitcoin. I think that we've spent a lot of time together where I know that we align in the way that we think and the way that you think is so beautiful and I really appreciate how you conceptually understand this new financial paradigm that we're entering into and how you're able to relate it in a way where, you know, us common folk that aren't so well versed in the triumvirate of liquidity that is the current financial markets. Triumvirate, not triumvirate, Russ. Again, common folk. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, well, let's start with your Bitcoin story a little bit. If you can give everyone some background. I know every podcast in the world does this, but I enjoy hearing your story as many times as I can. Maybe kind of tell everyone how you kind of got onto the scene with time value. We don't have to go too into that. And then maybe we talk a little bit about what you do at Tantra, and then we'd love to get into the, triumph the triumvirate of liquidity. <laughs> Sure. So I've always been interested in global macroeconomics. That's my background and that's the angle that I'm coming from. So when the financial crisis happened, I started to dig into the financial system and what allowed all these banks to leverage up and then go belly up and then get their bailout and all the things that kind of went into that whole process. That's how I found Austrian economics, gold, sound money, and, and that whole school. So when I happened upon Bitcoin a few years later, Bitcoin was easy for me to understand because I already came from understanding gold. Then I did the dive into understanding how Bitcoin worked. And that's when I really fell down the rabbit hole because I don't have a computer science background. Mm. 
So I had to learn what the power of cryptography was. And I had to learn what the game theory behind mining meant for Bitcoin. Why the process of mining itself secures Bitcoin and makes it this safe asset mm -hmm. for me to trust. In that safe meaning, I know it's mine. Yeah. So I so I told this story on on Marty Bent's podcast. But shout out to Marty Bent. Shout out Marty. You know, in the FinTwit world, which is what you know I was a part of, I would see the word Bitcoin a lot, but I never really you know went to understand it. Can you describe FinTwit? So that's so sounds for, like a person. Like so a for us Bitcoiners, Bitcoin Twitter. So FinTwit is financial market Twitter. Gotcha. Or finance Twitter. I'm really glad I'm not a part of that. Do I have to? Uh, you uh, are a part of it. Do I have to join that now? Actually, FinTwit and Bitcoin Twitter are merging. Ooh. And that's happening. And that's happened in the past few months with people like Raul Paul, Dan Tapiero mm. coming in and starting to do podcast interviews with Marty and Peter McCormick. Mm -hmm. And that it, it, they are actually merging. So it's really cool to see that. That's bullish. I've ever heard it. It's That's really cool. Definitely bullish. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, Real Vision, just which is Raul Paul's outlet, they just did uh, a multi-video series on Bitcoin versus gold. Had Saifedean on. Had Marty interview Safe on that. Robert Breedlove, Breedlove did um, an, a video there. They interviewed Meltem. They, I mean, they had a great couple week run of a video. So very encouraging to see the two worlds uh, merge. All right, so bad name, FinTwit, but good place. All right. <laughs> sure. So I saw, um, you know, charts being posted of Bitcoin uh, right around that $800 area in 2016. Um, and that was what brought me in because mm -hmm. I saw a chart that I wanted to be long. Yeah. And that that process hadn't happened yet. And so when I said, I like this chart, I want to be long what is Bitcoin? Mm -hmm. And that's when I had to understand what this was because I knew that I wanted to buy it because I thought the price would go up, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah. So uh, that's when I got involved in learning about Bitcoin and that's when I you know, became obsessed with it. So yeah. let's, let's talk about that because ultimately I think that's what drives everyone into the space, right? It's like the price is going up. And so I think the crypto anarchists, not to call them out, but they're kind of upset about that. Like why, you know, everybody just wants Bitcoin because the price goes up. But ultimately the price going up means that more people can get involved. And as more people get involved, the price has to go up to support all of them. So ultimately, how do you feel about Bitcoin's price? and how you can really tell things about the market because of that price. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's the least interesting thing on a daily basis to people that are in Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but it's still the most dramatic aspect of Bitcoin and the most exciting too. Yeah. So the most boring and the most exciting aspect at the same time, um, which is an interesting paradox. Uh, but you know, to, to answer your question, it is going to take a much larger market capitalization, a much larger market size yeah. to be able to facilitate more economic activity mm -hmm. and more storage of wealth. So it the price will have to go up over the longer term for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And the way in which Bitcoin goes up and down in price, it has massive swings. Mm -hmm. And that volatility is just part of it. And it's going to 
scare people away from Bitcoin, but we're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, it's kind of I mean, I wonder if you can make the argument that it's almost more cypherpunk that it does that. You know, for the first time, we actually have something where the price is not. I mean, okay, manipulation aside, the price is not. It's a free market. Like Bitcoin is not a money that's being controlled by a government and you can't inject more into the system. So, you know, these price swings are are a natural part of Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, uh, to your point, large price swings today actually scare away people that want to protect their money. Right. So because of these large swings, individuals who might not have as much wealth that are willing to, quote unquote, gamble on this unproven asset, have the opportunity to now have newfound wealth because of the logarithmic returns that we see through Bitcoin. Right. And so let's go into that a little bit. Why do we use logarithmic charts and functions to look at Bitcoin's price? We do that because Bitcoin exhibits exponential growth Mm -hmm. patterns so we have to normalize the exponential growth by expressing things logarithmically Mm -hmm. well we have to do the same sort of thing in terms of normalizing yeah when we talk about bitcoin's adoption Mm -hmm. as well so follow me here so in foreign countries in developing countries the Bitcoin price is going to move differently than it is versus U.S. dollars, right? right. Because those currencies have a lot of volatility. Mm-hmm. So if we do two things to normalize the Bitcoin price, which we see as dramatic in USD, normalize it, one, by converting it into a much more volatile currency, and then all of a sudden Bitcoin starts to look better or less volatile, right? Because it's preserving value better versus another currency. And then let's normalize it one more time by putting a 200-day moving average on it. Yeah. Okay? So now you've taken out the intraday volatility, normalized it over about half a year, and you've taken out or you've introduced another currency into the mix where that currency is less a store of value. Yep. And so you start to strip away these volatility aspects and really look at Bitcoin, which is it's going to be a better store of value than a lot of currencies out there. Mm-hmm. Over a long enough time horizon, Bitcoin has performed well against the dollar. We know that most days that if you've bought Bitcoin, you're profitable. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them, mm-hmm. right? But for a lot of these foreign currencies, the the that percentage is astronomically higher. higher. Yeah, Venezuela being a great example. I saw that chart earlier when Venezuela was facing hyperinflation. Basically, you know, Bitcoin was down like 30%. Yet against the Venezuelan, I think it's a peso. Boulevard, Boulevard. Boulevard, there you go. Against the Venezuelan The Venezuelan shit coin. <laughs> yeah, well, no, exactly. That's, that's the thing is like because of the tyrannical government and then essentially an unstable state, now Bitcoin is worth more money because it is a stable state. Like you have the internet backing this currency and no offense to Venezuela, but the internet is much more stable than their government. <laughs> and so- Ultimately, I think 200-day moving average is a great example of like, stop looking at the daily price of Bitcoin. Where's the 200-day moving average? Where does it look like it's headed? That is a great chart. And what's the 200-day moving average of that currency versus USD? Yeah. And now let's start to take a look at how stable Bitcoin really is, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. And it'll surprise people. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Nick, I, of course, know what the 200-day moving average is, but Russell here, uh, our CTO at Tantra, if you could explain it to him just so, you know, 
he and the viewers at home have a better sense of what that means, that would be fantastic. Right. As, so, as common folk. <laughs> so in June, we saw Bitcoin go from $8,000 to almost 14000 back down to ten in about 72 hours mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, that a, a crazy few days while a lot of us were in San Francisco Fun times. for Bitcoin 2019, that is just a dramatic price swing. But mm -hmm. the 200-day moving average is just the average price for the last 200 days. Mm. So, you know, the moving average isn't changing by more than a few dollars every day. Right. So like on that price swing, instead of going up 4000 plus dollars, it only went up like 100 or 200 right? Well, it's just a way to, again, to normalize the price for us right. so that of course, the difference between the 200-day moving average and where the price is today, it can be a huge amount, it can be a small amount, um, but it's just more a way of us to, to gauge where the price has been over the past several months. Basically, it means that Bitcoin is a lot more stable than people give it credit for. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, Nick, we totally messed up and didn't get into any of the questions we were supposed to when we first started out. <laughs> Can you uh, tell us what you do at Tantra, uh, why Tantra, you know, and um, kind of where things are headed for you in terms of your research and uh, things like that? Yeah, so I joined Tantra as a, a research strategist, someone who is interested in writing about Bitcoin native financial theory. That's what I did with the time value of Bitcoin. I tried to introduce concepts that were financial in nature using the financial architecture backdrop that we have and st basically stealing some of the good ideas, kicking out some of the bad ones, um, like the ability for the Fed and the banking system to create money mm -hmm. willy-nilly. Bitcoin fixes that with a supply schedule that's exact and precise in nature. But some of the concepts of time value and risk premium can be applied very nicely to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So my goal is to bring some of that language into Bitcoin, introduce concepts and dream up the Bitcoin denominated capital market. And when I came in to meet the founders of Tantra, the vision was aligned immediately. I could mm -hmm. see that Tantra was a Bitcoin denominated approach to investing. And that was exactly in line with my Bitcoin denominated interest rate theories. And then Tantra, you know, said, you have the freedom to keep dreaming up these things in our name and explore the future, you know, with us. And so it was a no brainer. I love it. It was amazing meeting you. And I'm sorry, I don't really read much because I program too much. So when you came in, I had never read your piece, but we spoke and it was amazing hearing your point of view and hearing just about thinking in terms of your base denomination, right? And so we've been working so hard just to accumulate more Bitcoin and to basically judge ourselves in terms of Bitcoin performance, ultimately thinking like if we can outperform the greatest asset class the world has ever seen, I think that's a pretty good investment. And so we're trying to think in terms of different denominations. And so it's the same idea as if an investor thinks in of their wealth in terms of USD and they think, how much more USD am I making? Or if they think in terms of pesos and they're just saying, how much more peso? So here we're just trying to think, you know, this is how much Bitcoin I have. How much Bitcoin am I making? Ultimately moving into this future. And I, I want to talk about this because this is the ultimate goal of Tantra is to replace a currency system that is fully transitory in nature 
and begin allowing people to value themselves in assets and not in inflationary energy that is being stolen from them daily by the existing financial infrastructure. And so if you could talk about that a little bit more, because ultimately I think that's what we're speaking about is like, let's get away from these assets that aren't real assets. They're it's fake. It's time theft. Yeah. It, we're literally being stolen from. And so I, I think that that's our first conversation was about that. And as I understand the time value of Bitcoin, that's truly the idea is like, let's, let's be asset denominated. Let's, let's stop thinking in terms of transitory wealth. Yeah, absolutely. It's really well said. What you're talking about is equity-based money versus debt-based money. Yeah. So the current system that we have is a debt-based money where the dollar is a liability of either a bank or the central bank. And then to escape that dollar, you buy U.S. treasuries, which is considered the safe haven asset. But even the treasury bond that you have, an asset to you, is the mm -hmm. liability of the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. So that's also a debt-based money. And the only way to avoid any of that stuff is to buy gold or land. Right. As, as or a lot, Well, yes, as a lot of wealthy people do. And but gold and land aren't currency like assets. Right. They are assets. It's hard to transact. They're hard assets. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so they're not transactionary. They're not, you know, transactional assets. Bitcoin is actually both. Mm. It's an asset and it has currency like features, not to mention what the Lightning Network has done to Bitcoin, mm -hmm. which it which it sped it, it sped it up infinitely yeah we now are we are free from the burden of block confirmations with lightning network so that's the power of bitcoin is it not only is it no longer a debt-based money system it's an asset-based money system but it's an asset-based money system that can move at the speed of light over the internet or via dope block stream satellites <laughs> or mesh networks in Venezuela, yeah. et cetera. Nick, keep talking dirty to me. You're really <laughs> making fintech sexy right now. Yeah, amazingly well said. Thank you. So that the, the debt-based versus the equity-based money is really the focus here, and that is what makes Bitcoin exciting. Yeah. The debt-based money system itself, the problem with that is that because money is created when debt is created mm -hmm. and debt can be created without limits in a lot of the banking systems of the world or the international banking system itself we don't there is no limit there is no theoretical limit on the supply or the amount of debt-based money that can exist right and to top that off and the icing on the cake is bitcoin is completely public when we look at basically this money system that's been put into place by the powers that be we have no idea like, yes, they're telling us this is the interest rate and they're changing it and all these things. But one, we have no control. Like they can do whatever they want. And then ultimately, we actually don't know how much money exists. There's no way to prove that this is what has been created and what's actually in circulation. And those things uh, for me as a programmer and as a quote unquote millennial are terrifying because ultimately all that I can see is that someone has abused the system to gain and I have no power there. 
And how can you build on it? When we look at like what the the, the M1 money supply, like it's just a guess, isn't it? Like there's no way to actually know. Whereas yeah, actually, Bitcoin, like the Fed uh, admitted that M1 and M2 were useless a couple of decades <laughs> ago. And that's actually why. So the Fed used to operate monetary policy by affecting the supply of money, mm. M1, M2. They would affect the supply by lowering or increasing it. But because they lost track of the ability to, or they lost the ability to track the money supply itself, in part because of this euro dollar offshore dollar problem, mm -hmm. they they stopped conducting monetary policy like that completely, and they moved more to targeting the interest rate of the reserves in the system, which so, is why we have Fed funds. Mm -hmm. So they they gave up this you know a long time ago. Mm -hmm. They don't even know how much money's out there. And now a word from our sponsors. Things just weren't going my way. My girlfriend didn't want to come over anymore. And no matter how often I cleaned the litter box, it still smelled. But then she suggested Vitalik's premium crypto kitty litter. And now she's happy, I'm happy, and most importantly, my crypto kitties are happy. Thanks to Vitalik's, litter box odor is gone. And the only thing I worry about is whether we'll ever see ETH 2.0. Do you want to earn interest on your Bitcoin? Tantra Labs has the highest performing return on debt in Bitcoin. To find out more about how we have delivered the highest return in the market, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, Medium, or the contact link available in the show notes. Now back to the show. So this is kind of a good place, I think, to, to really dig into the triumvirate. We've kind of been circling around a little bit. Folks at home, if you haven't read it yet, go to Tantra's Medium blog and read Nick's latest piece, The Triumvirate of Liquidity. Shilling Tantra here. Sorry about that. Um, but get used to it that this is a Tantra pod. <laughs> um, but Nick, if you could really kind of uh, expand on your piece a little bit, get into it for us and kind of bring everything full, full circle from what we were just talking about. Sure. So the thesis there is that the dollar is an obscurity. When people say Bitcoin is going to re uh, replace the dollar as the world reserve currency, it's skipping a lot of steps. Hmm. Yeah. Because you can't just replace the dollar. We don't even know what the dollar is anymore. Hmm. And that's where I focus a lot of the article. The article really is about the history of the dollar and why it's now in obscurity. Well, the dollar you can you take it to your bank, redeem it for gold. It's a uh, right. That's right. How it works. <laughs> Until 1971, right, when you couldn't do that anymore. And yeah, so the 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 quick story is that the dollar used to be backed by gold, and its convertibility was very reliable. You could go and you could exchange your dollars for gold at the treasury, and so the dollar became in 1944 the center of international commerce and finance by uh, in the Bretton Woods agreement agreement in New Hampshire between world leaders they said we'll use the dollar as our central currency because we know that if we all have dollars we can get gold with it mm -hmm. that was part of the reason that they chose the dollar well after a couple decades the treasury didn't like the fact that people could exchange it for dollars anymore mm -hmm. and they stopped and the mm -hmm. dollar became unanchored. Well, between the Bretton Woods Agreement and 1971, when they closed the gold window, international banks started to create this new offshore kind of make-believe temporary pretend dollar to settle between themselves mm -hmm. 
as a settlement currency because they couldn't access the dollars as they needed them from the United States. They weren't readily available. So they just created these book entry dollars on their balance sheet and lent it to each other and facilitated activity like that. Mm -hmm. Over the longer term, those offshore dollars and the onshore dollars became fungible. They were treated as the same thing mm -hmm. in global finance. That broke in 2007 for good. So it's a it's a very long story and, and a kind of a, a complicated story. And I do try to pack in 75 years of history into a seven <laughs> minute article. Um, but I do uh, provide a couple links in there uh, to go and do your own deep dive down the euro dollar rabbit hole. Because I know if you're a Bitcoiner out there, you know what this term rabbit hole means and you know it well. There's another one out there called the euro dollar rabbit hole, which is this this mystery of shadow banking. Mm -hmm. And and to answer one of your earlier questions, what are you focusing on in your research? It's more of this, understanding the shadow banking system, the fact that the dollar is not really a thing anymore, but just more of a banking instrument. So for a little context on this, before we started, and we'll definitely put this in the show notes, Nick showed me a diagram before we started recording that gave me, I can't tell you how much anxiety. I had to go meditate for a couple minutes. Uh, <laughs> just it, a few minutes? Just a few minutes. That's all I had. We had to prep for the podcast. Uh, so let me let me tell people so they can Google sure. it. Uh, just Google New York Fed shadow banking paper. And the first link that'll come up, it's a 70-page PDF or so by Zoltan Posar, who's now at Credit Suisse at the time um, with the Fed. And go and go take a look at the third or fourth page in that PDF. It is a diagram of the dollar system. And I had to zoom in, honest to God, 900% to start to read the little boxes in there. There's like, uh, you know, 150, 200 interconnected uh, boxes all with, you know, different financial instruments or different financial counterparties. And it shows the interlinked crazy complex shadow banking system that we that we have and it's just unimaginable to even think you can put it on one piece of paper that's kind of crazy it's like money shouldn't be that complicated it doesn't have to be that complicated you know but but that's the focus of my research going forward you know uh, from the traditional uh, market standpoint it's understanding more and more really how interconnected the banking dollar banking system is all right shadow banking so that kind of leads me to the next thing i want to touch on which is basically the current economic situation if you're on bitcoin twitter or crypto twitter or fintwit um you know a lot of people well maybe not on fintwit maybe they're more positive but on uh, bitcoin and crypto twitter everyone's kind of very negative and a lot of doomsdayers what i want to know nick is from your perspective and given your you know your your wealth of experience in the bond market what is actually going on right now like are we really in the middle of qe you know how does this all play out and like how how long can we kick this can down the road before you know we go belly up there are so many different asset classes out there and the number one asset class that the general general population focuses on is the stock market and the stock market since march 2009 has 5x in price and um really hasn't had any serious prolonged periods of decline we, there have been scares and there have been you know quick declines but there hasn't been anything to to worry about and so that's what 
gives the financial media the cover to say everything's fine or the Fed can save it or every, you know, everything's going well. Um, but when you really strip back and, and look at the details, um, you can see that not that everything is, is a disaster, but that a lot of the economy hasn't really recovered um, for the last decade. Uh, you know, and we get this by the income inequality statistics. Mm -hmm. um, those are probably the most dramatic yeah. where we see that. And it's not just 1%, but we're talking about the 0.01%, 0.1% of the population, their income growth versus the bottom 50%. That's where we start to see the fact that everything's not really fine, even though stocks have gone up four or 500% over the last decade. The way I see the global economy um, it's still it's still muddling along in this rich get richer and uh, the basically the rest of the world is just struggling to get by the same sort of debt loads, the same sort of lack of savings, uh, lack of preparedness for a medical emergency, mm -hmm. those types of things. So corporations doing well and profiting doesn't necessarily jive with average people not really having any real income growth um, over the past decade. So it's 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 not a great clear answer to your question, but yeah. markets are doing well. That doesn't mean people are doing that well. And we are, I think, coming to the end of an expansion cycle that the world has been going on since uh, since 09. Well, I mean, what, what is the path forward then for people to do well? Bitcoin fixes this, but like really that doesn't, you know, really well, answer the question. It doesn't you know? though. That's the thing. And amazingly well said. It's like with Venezuela, like Bitcoin is a potential solution. When you're talking about the lower half of America that Nick said very eloquently, can't even afford rent this month. And they're working three jobs to get rent. And then on top of that, some kind of emergency comes up. Somebody gets the flu. They have to buy medicine. They can't buy Bitcoin. No. And Bitcoin is like the last thing that they're going to hear about. They're going to hear about Bitcoin at a million dollars. The financial paradigm that exists today, like you're saying, it's designed to make the rich richer. And ultimately, I think this all comes back to this idea of like what's happening is these people are putting their time in and they're transacting in currencies and those currencies go straight through them and they don't own anything. They're They're renting their car. They're renting their house. They're they're eating the food as soon as they buy it. And the only way that we can get those people out of that paradigm is to give them assets. Mm -hmm. They have to own what they're doing. And that's like rich get richer because they own their business and they own their house and they own all these different things that are accumulating value. But when your dollar not only goes down in value every year, but also goes straight through your bank account and into the rich man's pocket, you're stuck and so yeah to to reiterate bitcoin is a solution but it won't be for them for a very long time unless all the people that get rich off bitcoin then go and disperse it amongst them but it's really more about trying to understand this market in a way where we can begin to integrate with those people and help them transact differently right and be asset based we need to encourage basically like a circular bitcoin economy which I mean, I don't think it's coming quickly, but it's definitely coming, you know. I really enjoyed what you said, and I think it's really important to stress the fact that the stock market's going up. That is not an indication of a healthy economy in any way. 
Well, what happens when the stock market goes up is that uh, the people that own the stocks get um, what we call a, the wealth effect, which is that if the price of your home and the value of your retirement portfolio go up, mm -hmm. you feel wealthier and are more willing to spend yeah. the current dollars that you have. Yeah. Which... And, 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 and that wealth effect actually goes into the decision making at the Fed. They try to goose the wealth effect mm -hmm. by lowering interest rates so to prop up the housing market yeah. or to um, change monetary policy when stocks don't do well in order to accommodate the holders of those stocks. What they're trying to do is boost the confidence of the asset holders by making the asset prices higher. Right. And so it, it, it is an important part of their approach. Right. It's to make people feel wealthy. Yeah. And so that's why a stock market, it doesn't help the average person directly mm -hmm. at all. But what they're doing is trying to just make the asset holders feel more wealthy or and happier or help them. So, but like on the flip side of this, like maybe, you know, there's this wealth effect and people feel a little bit better, but when shit hits the fan, when the markets go south, which they will, because there are always cycles, like people are not only, get, they're just going to feel even poorer, right? Like it, it goes in the opposite direction too, no? Yes, of course. So when that's when, why when stocks go down, consumer confidence drops mm -hmm. because of the wealth effect. They have less money in their retirement account, so they don't want to spend their today dollars. Mm. And so, it, yes, it does work both ways. And that is why the Fed has become so sensitive to the stock market and let the, and lets the stock market dictate a lot of what they do. And we make a joke that the uh, in the markets that the Fed has a third mandate. So the Fed, you know, by law has a dual mandate. That is, they try to keep price inflation steady and they try to maximize employment. So they're trying to you know, help people get jobs and make sure that prices don't get out of control. These are the two things that they are by law mandated to do. But we make fun of them because their third mandate is the S&P 500. <laughs> and it yeah. used to be a joke, but now it's common knowledge yeah. straight up because you just look at the stock market behavior and when the Fed makes their monetary policy adjustments or they shift in their policy or what they're going to do, they're correlated 100%. Mm -hmm. it's, not a, it's not a conspiracy theory anymore. It's just a fact. And they've yeah. said it in their speeches that we, tar we target the wealth effect. So we know that they're doing it. Mm. All right. It's a little depressing. Let's uh, move on to something a bit more hopeful. Bitcoin gives me hope, but also the kids, the kids give me hope, you know, the kinder. For those who don't know Nick very well, he is a father. He has one of the cutest kids I've ever seen. She's smarter than all of us. I'm pretty sure she wrote the triumvirate of liquidity. And Nick, how old is she? She turns two in a couple weeks. Yes. So it's a, a very well-written piece by a two-year-old, I have to say. All right. No more jokes. <laughs> all right. So Nick, you have a daughter. You're raising a family in this uncertain world. What are what are the things you're considering? Like, how are you? Are you raising a Bitcoin or daughter? You know, I heard uh, we, we got dinner the other day and uh, you asked her what money was. And it was uh, I couldn't believe my ears. And I think you were the proudest father I've ever seen. So, like, you know, how, what's it like living, raising a daughter in this day and age with Bitcoin on the mind? Sure. So I do think that how you allocate your assets is like a private family matter. And so. Um, even though I'm going to teach her about Bitcoin, you don't want to talk about 
Bitcoin. You don't want to go to school and say, oh, my dad has this car or we live yeah. in this house or we have this much Bitcoin. That's not what it's about. We want to learn about what money is. We want to learn about history. Mm -hmm. And so I bought the Bitcoin rabbi's book. You know, I've read that to her and, you know, just teaching her things about what money is, the value of work, earning your allowance when she's old enough to earn it, mm -hmm. you know, instead of just getting it. Are you going to give her an allowance in Bitcoin? Of course. Like I've thought about that <laughs> a lot. Um, yeah. You know, she's two, so I have some time to think about it. But how am I going to introduce money to her? It's definitely something that I've thought a lot about. So she's, but she's going to understand from a very early age what money by decree mm -hmm. versus money. For every green pea that you eat, I'll give you one Satoshi. Yeah. <laughs> Incentivize that child. <laughs> make it broccoli. She likes peas already. So oh, okay. uh, we've got to make it something like broccoli or a spinach. Carrot or yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that. All right. So let's talk hyper Bitcoinization. Let's talk the future. You know, you raise your daughter into this world and she understands money, but like, how how long is this going to take? I don't know how long it's going to take. My guess is that Bitcoin will be a very usable international currency within a decade. Mm -hmm. Like you'll be able to go and travel all around the world and just pay in Bitcoin everywhere that you go. So how do we get from where we are here today to that point? I think that it takes, first of all, people are using Bitcoin today transactions worldwide small medium and large mm -hmm. it's already happening mm -hmm. it's just not as visible to everybody yet and we have go-betweens like i use lightning network all the time like there are those like you know credit cards that convert the crypto or bitcoin in the background so you know i mean there's even like i saw someone the other day who was doing like a he came to the art show that we did he was living on crypto for like 12 weeks as like a, an experiment and mm -hmm. he was fine you know like you know we're not quite there yet but you know it's doable so right so the way that I see Bitcoin, Bitcoinization happening is by Bitcoin being the asset that people swap their assets for mm. to store wealth in the intermediate. What do you mean by intermediate? So by intermediate, I mean, if I have a house and let's say, let's say I'm a wealthy individual and I have five homes, I'm blessed, <laughs> right? And, um, you know, I want to get rid of two of the homes. But I don't, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an American. I don't have a great way to store that cash. Mm -hmm. I don't want to put it in the stock market. I don't want to put it into the government bond market either because that doesn't do me any good in terms of yield. I'm, you know, let's say I'm European, so it's negative. Mm -hmm. I don't want that. I want three, four million dollars or euros held in Bitcoin for a couple of years until I can figure out what to do with it until I can invest it in another building, mm -hmm. in more land, in another business, in a stock that I like, or something like that. So this is intermediate store of value, mm -hmm. real use case, because we already have the long-term long -term store of value use case. People that just don't want dollars, don't want euros, want to hold Bitcoin for 10 to 20 years, sure, 30 to 50 years. Those people have made allocations and they'll continue more people like that will continue to make that decision. But how does monetization happens when Bitcoin becomes that interim money? 
So whether it's one week or one year, that's the prime like time window mm -hmm. for this type of asset swap. So that's kind of like cosmically how I'm thinking about how it'll evolve over the longer term. Selling your home for Bitcoin, selling your stake in your company that you built over the course of several years for Bitcoin, holding that Bitcoin until you swap it for the next asset. I agree. I think ultimately it's like, at least today, you have to understand that no matter what, if you hold a dollar, you lose 2% a year. Right? And I think the more people that understand that, or even, uh, let's, let's take that a step back, right? Because that's just inflation. Like we're talking about wealthy investors. These people, these are people that have cash flow opportunities. They have the ability to invest in the stock market. So actually when they hold their dollar, they lose like 20% a year in value. So like you said, like let's put it into the next asset that's actually easy. And if Bitcoin becomes that easy and liquid asset, then it's a no-brainer. Well, it's it's actually why wealthy people own stocks. Right. Is because they don't want the dollars. Yep. Well, they know they know that their buying power power is just depleting. Right. It's so why not keep your buying power at least uh on par with corporate America? Yep. Absolutely. And that's why people expose themselves to stocks because they mm -hmm. just, they'll, they're going to lose over the yeah. empirical evidence shows that you're going to lose if you don't own stocks. Yep. You're going to lose out on all of that retirement income or capital gain. Yeah, absolutely. So when people decide to buy Bitcoin or land or gold, they're also making that trade off mm. uh, between, you know, between dollars and an asset. So it's it's like the real estate money, the stock market money. That's the stuff that I see Bitcoin competing with to get to that monetization. Let Bitcoin become just one of the big assets that wealthy people own, mm -hmm. land, stocks, Bitcoin. Well, and that, so let's talk about why those assets, right? So scarcity. Right? That's right. And so when we when we say stocks, land, gold, Bitcoin, each one of those assets is scarce. There's, yes. there's only so many in existence and all of them are worth something because we live in an inflationary world. Right, and so let's go even deeper. The Let's look at the scarcity of each one. Stocks are scarce because there are only a certain amount of really good companies in the world mm -hmm. and they only issue shares when they want to issue shares, but still the supply is unknowable. Mm -hmm. Scarce, but unknowable can go up a lot yeah land you can build up too so it's scarce but there's still you know you can build yeah and, and gold like um we know that it's scarce we know that there's supply introduced every year by mining mm -hmm. um we get uh asteroid fud yeah <laughs> which is funny it's my favorite fud yeah <laughs> but um, usually once a week i'll tag peter schiff and something about <laughs> asteroids but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. And then we have Bitcoin, which the supply schedule is exact and we know it. So I'm not saying that Bitcoin um, is just automatically the best asset because it has yeah. the prettiest uh, supply schedule, which it does of all the rest <laughs> of them. And the most transparent. And the most, and transparent. most transparent. But that's how Bitcoin enters that club yep. or the triumvirate of liquidity. It starts to enter that echelon of preserving value, maintaining scarcity, and being finite and an anchor that, you know, the population can uh, hold on to. Amazing. Um, basic attention token. 
I've heard of bat. What is that? Oh, so this is actually pretty cool. The founder of JavaScript created a browser that anonymizes your internet history, basically, and allows you to consent to advertisements and be rewarded upon like watching them. So basically paying the end user in bat token um, to actually participate in ads. Sounds interesting, but Chicken. So I'm going to give my thoughts, even though no one asked for them. I love the Please. idea of incentivizing uh, people to watch ads. I think that's great. But my question is, if the advertisers are going to pay anyway, why don't the advertisers pay in Bitcoin and yeah. then the users get some of that in Bitcoin? Like give the people what they want. Like, I, I don't want yeah. that. Or any currency. Or any currency, yeah. yeah. Why create your own? Because you need to fund yourself and make money. Yeah. Or asset, any asset. Sure. But, you know, pay also, me in diamonds. That's cool. Whatever. Uh, hopefully, Bat actually, Saifedean talks about something that's really important. He's like, the world coalesced around the gold standard through centuries of trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then we just went backwards. Mm. And like a multiple cryptocurrency landscape just doesn't jive with what we've learned. I mean, yeah. well, that's the thing is like, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. I identify as that. But, <laughs> and I do think that like, we're going to tend towards the hardest, soundest money. And I also think that, you know, there are going to be lots of coins for a decent amount of time, but Bitcoin's going to capture the most value. You know, that's what we're going to use. So if I can interject, because the way that I understand is more along we're moving into a digital world a digital asset based mm -hmm. world so like if bat token if we use this as the example sure if by owning that you then own a security and own part of this gener like revenue generating company that is not a shit coin well that's totally the security tokens are totally different right so it it's when you create a project that you have to use this currency to transact on the network that it makes absolutely no sense and they should be using some other form of monetary transaction. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they they say it's like a utility token. I don't know if that's what the guys at BAT say, but like a lot of people say, oh, it's a utility token. You have to, it, it's useful on the network. It's like, no, what you made was money. Yeah. You know, maybe you didn't intend to make money, but you did. Right. And they don't want to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Neo, you know what Neo is? Chinese Ethereum. Ant shares? No. I'll, I'll answer for you. Definitely shitcoin. <laughs> uh, Monero. I know what Monero is. That's your answer? That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I know that um, I know that Nick Sabo thinks Monero and Zcash are the two most interesting privacy-related projects aside from Bitcoin. That's mm -hmm. about as much as I know. Tron. I know that Tron was started by a guy who tried to buy lunch with Warren Buffett. Yep. <laughs> That's what I know about that. Do you want me to tell you about it and then you can tell me if it's a shit no. coin? Shit coin. <laughs> uh, Binance coin. Binance coin. I don't know what they use it for, but I know that uh, it has entered the top 10 in... Number seven. Currency market yeah. Cap. I mean, if you're, if you hold Binance coin, there's certain benefits like you lower trading fees and things like that. And I think it gives you access to airdrops and they just yeah. started their own chain too. And then they have, um, 
It's a deflationary model. So basically, as they create revenue, they're going to burn their token. Shitcoin. I mean, you know, interim, these are like interim things that people Mm -hmm. use, like kind of like Tether, not exactly, but these things have use cases. I do, I would say like uh, Binance Coin falls into the realm of security. It does. Because you essentially are subject to the revenues generated by Binance. Mm -hmm. And so. Like to me, it's not really a shit. Yeah, that's it's more, more of a security. security. And uh, personally, I'm a bag holder. But how are you like sharing the revenues? Because so as they generate, like as trading fees accumulate on their cl- platform, they actually burn the BNB that they received. So theoretically, the value of your BNB goes up is what you're saying. There's less and less in existence. So. Right. Yes, the value will go up. I don't know. I might push back a little bit in the sense that like not everyone's using BNB for fees. You're not well, getting the exchange in the space by volume. I mean, when you look at no, 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 I don't, not not Binance. Not not that they're not using the exchange. What I'm saying is like I could go on Binance and I could I'm trading Bitcoin. I'm going to pay a fee in Bitcoin if I don't opt to use BNB as the trading fees. Even if I hold BNB, if a lot of people are using Bitcoin and not and paying the fees in Bitcoin, like mm-hmm. I'm not seeing any of that. Totally. So it's not a direct security. Like it, it's more security like maybe. Yeah. But still a shit coin. Fair. For now. <laughs> I, again, until it's tied to the company's balance sheet and revenue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We love you, CZ. Come on the podcast. Yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of what they're doing. It's amazing. Ravencoin. Ooh. I've never heard of that. Ooh. Shit coin. I'm pretty sure it's a major shit coin. Shit. Why keep picking shit coins? Dude, I'm I'm just picking all of them. Augur. I've heard of Augur. Augur is the uh the bet the betting one, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Oracle oh. platform. The assassination market. Yeah, honestly. That's the problem with those. But this one's interesting. This is actually a really good example of a, a really well intended shitcoin. Like they built really good technology. But like you should use USDT or like Bitcoin through their technology. They didn't need to make a coin, a token for it. Like it makes no sense. All right, now I'm interested. What? In what what, what this is? Augur? Oh, that you were talking about Augur. Yeah. Oh, prediction markets, right? Prediction market. Yeah. They built all the smart contracts required in like their own language. I remember that uh, Nick Carter talked about this in one of his uh, interviews that he gave. Hmm. That's how, I, that's how I heard about it. Nick, I love that you really live in the uh, the Bitcoin world and you kind of keep your blinders on. Correct me if I'm wrong, like you weren't really ever a shitcoiner. No. Or, or were you? No, no. I've never owned any. Good man. Anything. I used I, to be a big shitcoiner. You so own I, dollars. I. Yeah. Ultimate shitcoiner. I, I may have. Uh-oh. Here comes, folks. The truth. This is what we do on Tantra Talks. Or let's say that. Let's say it like this. I li- <laughs> I lived through the Bcash fork. Okay. Uh-huh. And I used Bcash during that time. You used it. What do you mean you to used sell it? it for Bitcoin? <laughs> Nick, oh. come on, that doesn't count. That's fine. You're okay. Yeah, I think we might cut this whole game, but yeah, I, um, <laughs> let's do that. Yeah, I, I don't like putting opinions on things like shitcoin or not. Yeah. Because like you might go sit here and say Ripple's a shit coin, and then next thing you know, like twenty years from now, Ripple is Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like we had a podcast. Not about, really necessarily on brand for uh, what we're as a company podcast kind of thing. Totally. Um, but I digress. We were talking the other day about actually holding like Bitcoin Satoshi Vision and Bitcoin Cash as a hedge against Bitcoin. What? 
Yeah. Well, no, it's just a smart fucking economic thing to do, man. It's not whether I believe in them or not. It's like if these projects work, if they set to do what they're trying to do and it's a legitimate effort, then they have a much higher potential. So you're stacking sats. So even if you believe in Bitcoin, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision has a 100x return before it even gets to Bitcoin's market cap right now. I totally understand that and I buy that as a reasoning. My thought process though is is that you look at Satoshi Vision or BCH and you look at the power structure and the way it's set up and like who essentially is controlling it, it's a few people, you know? I'm like, I'm, I, can't, I don't know so much about BCH, but like BSV, it's like, but yeah, they're the developers, but like... There's plenty of projects like that. Um, and like you could say the same thing about companies and like private companies like there's a few people that own the whole company but ultimately they're the one driving the ship and what you're subscribing to even with bitcoin you subscribe to satoshi nakamoto's vision of monetary policy and so he just wrote such a generic and amazing policy that the whole world can agree on the question is 20 years from now do they agree on sv's policy or do they believe on cash's policy like uh, it's more a hedge of like, I'm going to admit that I don't know the future. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I'm going to trust that, you know, whether these people are crazy or not, speaking on Craig Wright in general, they might have good ideas about future economic policies. Now, I do not own any Satoshi Vision or Bitcoin Cash, but just speaking of it as a theoretical hedge, if the underlying monetary policy that we today believe is a good hedge to the current financial infrastructure turns out to need more options, right? Mm -hmm. Like larger block sizes or- But that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin can evolve. And like what I'm betting on is not necessarily the current um, monetary policy. I mean, I am in some sense, mm -hmm. but I'm also betting on the, the kind of anarchic governance of Bitcoin. You know, totally. that's why I don't believe in most, in any coins that have governance baked in because I just don't think it works. So Bitcoin has governance baked in. Bitcoin, that's consensus baked in. That's governance. No, no, I'm talking about how the how the coin evolves, how the code changes over time. So Bitcoin right now, if the code is going to change, the consensus, the miners mm -hmm. come together and vote. Sure. They vote By with their running, hash. Yeah. So it's a governance mechanism. The idea is that, and so a lot of developers have spawned away from the Bitcoin core community because it is so hard to change. Because if you have a good idea like SegWit or larger block sizes, not saying they're good ideas, but just if you have an idea, it is extremely hard to get majority share of the network to agree on that idea versus implementing some kind of governance protocol that's more involved with stakeholders or just simpler. Yeah, but I see that as a strength, not a weakness. Again, it this is not a marketplace where you just have one thing. Like Walmart isn't the only grocery store in the world right? And Uber and Lyft are competing and Amazon has, well, Amazon's actually winning as far as uh, global marketplaces are concerned. But at the same time, you can go to other people's websites. You know, Bitcoin is Amazon and then Ripple is like, uh, I don't know any other online retailers, but uh, <laughs> there's some other large online retailer. Um, Alibaba. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Exactly. In other words, like in a free market, other things will and can exist. And so the idea is like, hedge yourself because ultimately you can bet on Bitcoin all you want, but if something else comes along and you were not, uh, let's say- Exposed to it, sure. Well, exposed to it, but also 
I think humble enough to admit that you don't know the future. Mm-hmm. That that's really what it comes down to is like today, you know, we're sitting here and I think we're all Bitcoin maximalists, right? Mm-hmm. Like my portfolio is over 90% Bitcoin. I was literally just telling you I have like zero month, zero US dollars in my account because it just goes straight into Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is more that we are moving into a future where there's possible technologies coming out that might be better or not, not better that will exist alongside it and exposure to them. Like if you bought ETH at 30 cents, Mm -hmm. it's a lot more Bitcoin. Yeah. That's one way to look at it. Nick thoughts. I just think Bitcoin is all encompassing. We're headed in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And so the energy, the, the brain power, the hash power, they all just make me not want to think about anything else because of the gravity just pulls you, it's pulling everything in. I mean, I feel that, but I, I will, Russell, I'll give you one point that we do have to think about mm-hmm. the other things. Like if you, if, if you want to really try to understand what's going on, like even if you don't agree or don't like what's going on elsewhere, like yeah. thinking about it is smart. But I also take Nick's side in that like, I think we're at a point where unless there was a massive a catastrophic bug or let's say every all the governments in the world banded together to shut Bitcoin down, which will never happen. If somehow Bitcoin blew up, then, you know, then other options might make more sense. But Bitcoin is this gravity well. And you say that, like, you know, change is very difficult on Bitcoin. And I agree. But if something comes along and it works and it will make Bitcoin better, I do think that the community will adopt it. It may take longer, mm-hmm. but I think... Even if Satoshi's vision comes up with something awesome, right? Mm-hmm. And Listen, they, when if and when SHA-256 breaks sometime in the next century, yeah. right, they'll right. have to yeah. fix that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to the point, I'm totally just playing devil's advocate. Again, I'm like major Bitcoin holder. But the idea is that we have... To... <laughs> Was that a pomp reference? <laughs> the idea is more so that we live in a world today where there isn't just one entity that controls everything. And when you talk about Bitcoin being all encompassing, you're talking about the one world entity that does everything, which again, not to say like there's one version of the internet, but there's also a dark web, you know, like, so Bitcoin's the internet, who's the dark web, right? Or like who's running alongside it. And, you know, we have private blockchains and we have all these things that Bitcoin is not necessarily the answer to. It might be, but maybe have to be. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I do think that it is all encompassing. Listen, even gold has platinum and silver. Mm-hmm. People, you know, store precious metals and yeah. different types of precious metals. So, But gold has the dominant market share, yeah, the, totally. the longest track record. So maybe something like that. Absolutely. All right, folks. On that note, we want to thank Nick for joining us. This was a great episode of Tantra Talks. We hope to have you back again soon. Russell, any any closing words for the uh, the normal folks at home? Om Satoshi Nakamoto. That was very well put, Russell. Thank you. Thank you for that. No problem. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Rhea? Do you know about Bitcoin? Yeah. What is it? If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, consider leaving us a positive review, and sharing us with your friends. And if you'd like to earn interest on your Bitcoin, Tantra Labs has the highest performing return on debt in Bitcoin. 
To find out more about how we have delivered the highest return in the market, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, Medium, or the contact link available in the show notes. Thanks for listening.